Right, so uh, I have a sister-in-law in Jacksonville called Katie, and she is a high school <coughs> theater teacher. And uh, as I look at her teach, I, I think that Katie was just born to be a high school theater teacher. She's been teaching for 17 years now, and she is astonishingly good at it. School kids enter her theater program with average talent, or sometimes less than average. <laughs> Uh, sometimes they were football players who had no real interest in theatre at all, but were looking for easy credits. And she takes this random assortment of teenagers, and she turns them into a community, and she uses them to perform plays and musicals that, as far as I can tell, are Broadway standard. Her students just love her, and she changes their lives. Many of them have gone on to successful careers in theatre, and many of them have come to faith in Jesus through her witness. So I think Katie was just born to do that job. She's good at it in every way, because of her personality, because of her life experience, because of her gifting, because of the desires and dreams of her own heart, and because of God's call on her life. And one of Katie's greatest and most mysterious talents is casting. She always seems to know who needs to be in which role. And sometimes she makes surprising choices that other people don't understand, and even the parents are surprised. But she's always right. She always nails it. And we go and watch the show, and we're just left marveling and asking, how did you know that that was in that kid? But Katie knows because Katie's a true expert at her job. And I think in my whole life, I've rarely known anyone who's so obviously born to do what they do. It's something that we all search for, isn't it? If we have the luxury of choosing what we do with our lives, then we hunt around for the thing that we were really born to do. And we find just how difficult a thing that is to, to find. <coughs> Um, I guess most of us, as we go through life, if we get the chance, we end up getting somewhere close in the end. But I still think that it's rare to see someone who gets it just exactly right. So that when it does happen, it's a really amazing thing to see. And I think it's like that when we watch Paul working as a cross-cultural missionary. That he was just born to do that job. And I mean that both in the worldly sense of his natural human gifting and in the godly sense of the one thing that God put him here on earth to do. So this morning we're looking at Acts chapter 14, um, and it would be good to turn up there. So uh, if someone can find it in the black church Bibles and yell out a page number, that would be great. 923. 923. Perhaps it, he has the microphone too. Page 923, Acts chapter 14. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're following Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey into Cyprus and Turkey. And so today I want to draw attention to some of the ways that Paul was just really good at his job. And I want to do that not so that we can admire Paul particularly, but so we can admire the Lord Jesus who cast him in this role. And so we can see what really good gospel ministry looks like. And I think by extension, so that we can learn lessons about excellence in serving Jesus in whatever it is that he's specifically called us to do. 
All right, so we're going to look at three ways that Paul was excellent as a cross-cultural missionary. Here are the three ways. First, because he refused to take any glory for himself. Second, because he responded to persecution with faith. And third, because he handed over leadership to others. All right, those are our, that's our roadmap for today, those three things. So first, Paul refused to take any glory for himself. And we see this in a couple of places in chapter 14, but most significantly in the situation in Lystra, which starts in verse 8. So just to quickly recap the journey so far, Paul and Barnabas started off in Antioch in Syria, which was their home church, and they were part of the pastoral team there. And they were called by God and commissioned by the church elders to go on a missionary journey, to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, west into what is now Turkey. So they set sail and they started off on the island of Cyprus. Then they went north from Cyprus and landed in Turkey, what's now Turkey, in a town called Perga, which is on the Mediterranean coast. Um, and then they walked north about 100 miles inland to uh, Antioch in Pisidia, another Antioch. And then at the beginning of chapter 14, they traveled another 100 miles southeast to the city of Iconium, and from there another 40 miles south to Lystra. So these were long journeys on foot between the cities. We're talking weeks on the road at a time. And we're going to catch up with them in Lystra, starting in verse 8 of chapter 14. Luke writes, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. You can empathize with that. <laughs> uh, Paul saw that the man had faith to be made well, and he healed him by commanding him to stand. And as we read this little story in Acts 14, we can't help but be reminded, if we've been following through Acts, of chapter uh, 3, where Peter heals a lame man. It's really Peter's first um, obvious miracle in Acts. Um, and here Paul is uh, starting out with a similar miracle. So we have the healing of lameness in both stories, and the gazing intently, if you remember Peter in Acts 3. The healing by command, if you remember when we talked about that, Peter healed by word of command in the Lord's name, and uh, Paul does the same thing here. Um, and then we have a sudden and complete healing in response to that command. The man leaps up, there's words about jumping around and being completely healed, it's not a partial healing, but a complete and total healing of lameness. So we're thinking about these two stories together, and we remember that after Peter healed a lame man back in Acts chapter 3... Many of the Jews in the temple who saw it started glorifying God. The Jews knew that God had done that miracle. But here in Acts chapter 14, when Paul does the same miracle, the reaction of the people is very different because the Gentiles in Lystra began to worship Paul and Barnabas. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus come in the flesh. And that's kind of ironic because that was close to the idea they were trying to communicate that God had come in the flesh, but it wasn't them, it was Jesus. Um, so the attention of that crowd was misdirected from God to the messenger. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would find that quite nice. <laughs> to have a city full of people worshipping me. Because they bring nice gifts, and they offer sacrifices, and fetch me things, and clean up after me, and make songs about me, and write poems about me, and basically do whatever I wanted them to. And I think there's a part in all of us that would actually quite like that, to be served and attended to and adored. That reaches deep inside us and strokes our egos and flatters our pride. 
And I think it has to have come as a temptation to Paul and Barnabas to just receive that and enjoy it. A bit like when Satan tempted Jesus by offering him the cities that he could see from the high mountain. Because think about what Paul and Barnabas had been through and what their choices were at that moment. They'd been chased out of Antioch and they were almost stoned at Iconium. And they could go on to other cities where they'd probably meet with more hostility and plenty of suffering. Or maybe they could stay in Lystra for a while and enjoy some positive attention for a change. Rest a bit after all that weary traveling and let a city full of people take care of them and bring them choice foods and rich gifts. I think it has to have been tempting. But there's not the tiniest hint in Acts 14 that Paul and Barnabas even considered giving in to that temptation. On the contrary, in verse 14, Luke reports, When they heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. And they urgently explained the truth, that all glory belongs to God. So Paul and Barnabas didn't forget who they were or the one they were serving. And they were faithful servants. They were jealous for God's glory. And they were unwilling to even consider taking any of that glory for themselves. And we see that same attitude again at the end of the chapter. When they return to their home church in Antioch in Syria, their report that they give their sending church returned all the credit and all the praise to God. So this is verse 27. They arrived and they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You see that? They told their congregation, God just did a great thing and not we just did a great thing. So it's good for us to seek excellence and to be excellent in what we do, to work hard and to work with all our hearts and to do things well that's good and right and admirable. But we need to realize that we might succeed. And if we do, there's a real possibility that people will notice and want to praise us. And we're probably not talking a whole city full of people bringing sacrifices and bowing down in worship. But we will find smaller scale and more modern versions of the same kind of thing, like accumulating millions of followers on Twitter, or medals and certificates and award ceremonies, or praise from our boss and our colleagues. And none of these are necessarily bad, but they can tempt us, can't they, to take some of the glory and to boast. We must never forget that everything good that we have is a gift of God. So when Paul healed the lame man in Lystra, it was obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? No one who knew God could make any mistake about that. It was the Holy Spirit that did it. But is it any less a work of the Holy Spirit that you're an excellent accountant with a great head for numbers? Is that any less God's work? Or an excellent student with a perfect grade point average? Is it any less God's work that that's true? Or an excellent parent with a high-achieving child? Is that any less God's work? No. Because every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And Paul would later write to the church in Corinth, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So boasting is excluded. Right? And, and most of us know that. And sometimes in our efforts to avoid boasting, we negate the good work of God. Right? You're going to recognize this. Imagine this scenario. 
Um, say someone comes up to you after a performance and says to you, the way you played that violin was so beautiful, it moved me to tears. And in an effort to be humble and to avoid boasting, you respond, oh no, that was nothing. I didn't think it was very good at all. Maybe the English do that more than the Americans. But I think we do do it, right? We, 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 we push aside compliments uh, in a sort of false humility. But what have you done when you've done that? Yes, you have avoided boasting. You've avoided taking the glory for yourself, but you've denied it from God too. You've taken the glory away from God as well, and you poured cold water on that other person's enthusiasm. So instead of stamping out praise, we need to redirect it. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. They didn't stamp out the worship of those people in Lystra. They redirected it to its proper place. There is someone who deserves this worship, and he's up there. So in our scenario, up comes that fan after your performance and says, the way you played that violin was so beautiful, it moved me to tears. We can share their experience of being a recipient of grace. So we might say instead, thank you. I was so grateful for the chance to play that piece because it's always moved me too. Or maybe this, I'm so glad. Playing the violin is one of my favorite things that God's enabled me to do. Do you see how those other replies avoid the boasting, but they still acknowledge that there's a beautiful gift here from the Father, and they're glad to receive it. So we're encouraged to celebrate the good that God has done in and through us, but we're not allowed to take the credit and the praise and the glory that properly belong to God, okay? So that's the first thing. Paul refused to take any glory for himself. Now second, Paul responded to persecution with faith. Now, we can't read through the book of Acts and think that Paul looked for persecution. Uh, we can see him avoiding it wherever he can. So we see him here in uh, verse 6 of chapter 14. He's avoiding the stoning if he can. Paul learns about the plot um, in Iconium to stone him, and he gets out of that city in a hurry. Right? He flees the persecution. But nevertheless, the lynch mob found him in the end, in Lystra in verse 19. And that's what they were. They were a lynch mob. This was no kind of criminal trial, or it was no kind of chaotic riot. It was a very purposeful and deliberate lynching. And the aggressors, the people that stoned Paul, worked surprisingly hard. Because Paul had left their cities long behind. He was long gone from Antioch and Iconium. The people from those two cities followed after him. The people from Antioch walked 140 miles to stone Paul. And I find that pretty astonishing. How much would you have to hate someone that you would walk from here to Jacksonville to do them in? You would be camping along the I-10 for nearly two weeks. But that's what these men did. And they convinced the men of Lystra, who'd only recently stopped worshipping Paul, to stone him instead. Which is the kind of radical mood swing that reminds us of the last week of Jesus' own life. Where some of the same people who shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday were then shouting crucify on Good Friday. Paul was lynched by evil men for doing the work that Jesus told him to do. And Jesus didn't protect him. Not this time. He did it other times. He warned Paul to get away, but not this time. Which is part of the story that frankly still troubles me. I'm still of the opinion 
that the faithful servants of Jesus should be properly protected and provided for. <laughs> but I'll tell you frankly that God doesn't seem to share my opinion. <laughs> or at least he has very different standards of what counts as properly protected and provided for. Jesus told his followers, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And here with Paul, we see that word coming true. And it doesn't mean that Paul had been in any way unfaithful. Actually, it was a consequence of his faithfulness that he got stoned. Most of God's faithful prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted in some way. Like we read about Jeremiah being thrown into that cistern to die. And many of the prophets did die prematurely at the hands of wicked men. So the suffering didn't mean that Paul was unfaithful or that he or his friends had failed to pray hard enough or that God had fallen asleep at the wheel and forgotten all about Paul. Instead, it confirmed and demonstrated what Jesus had said, that the world hates him and his followers. And Jesus seems willing for that reality to be demonstrated over and over again in the lives of his own servants demonstrated with pain and tears. It seems that trusting his, his word on it is not enough. And that's for purposes that we will not always seek. So Paul was stoned by an angry mob. And stoning was a form of execution that's prescribed for certain crimes in the law of Moses, particularly for blasphemy or cursing God. And stoning was a horrible death. So what would happen is that a group of men would gather large rocks, big rocks, um, and they would make a circle around their victim and hurl the rocks at their victim until most of his bones were pulp and he bled to death from a thousand open wounds. Horrible death. So when the work was finished, the lynch mob might not have been certain that Paul was actually dead, and he probably wasn't. Luke seems to suggest in verse 19 that Paul wasn't dead. But the mob would have been certain that he'd never walk again. His body would have been totally destroyed. But Luke reports in verse 20 that when the disciples gathered around him, probably to pray, that Paul rose up and entered the city. And then the very next day, he started out on the 60-mile journey to Derby. So even if that's not a miracle of resurrection, it was certainly a major miracle of healing. God would have had to knit together dozens of broken bones and repair several organs for that 60 mile journey to be even remotely possible. But Paul got up and he kept going. His main focus was still the mission that Jesus had sent him on. And you've got to admire his tenacity. All right. Ever since he landed on the coast of Turkey, he's been traveling basically eastward. He's been basically on his way home. He's been going back towards the starting point in Syria and Antioch. And by the time he arrived in Derby, it was only a hundred miles to go to get to Tarsus, his hometown, where his family would surely have put them up and taken care of them. And from there, it was just a short hop back to Antioch. And if it were me, I'm sure I would have said, enough is enough. I'm going home. It was already a successful mission trip. They'd done their job. A bunch of people were saved. Some of them were here. They'd have plenty of great stories to tell to their sending committee. But that's not what they did. Instead of a hundred miles east, home, to safety, they turned around and headed back west, 350 miles in the other direction. 
and back into the lion's den, back to the very cities where the lynch mob lived. How gutsy is that? And Paul did it so that he could consolidate his missionary work, so that he could strengthen the souls of the disciples, encourage them, and appoint elders over them. And on his return journey, Paul brought these new disciples a new message, one to which his own body now testified. And it was the message that, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How faithful is that? The disciples in these towns would have known all about the lynch mob. It would have made big headlines in the local news. They would never have imagined they'd ever see Paul again. And can you imagine their astonishment and joy when he showed up again. Can you imagine what that did for their own faith, for their own impression of God and his people and how much God loved and cared for them? I would imagine that Paul had twice as much to offer them on the second time through than he even did the first time. Now, he looked just like the Jesus he was preaching about. He was suffering unto death for their sake. Now these people who'd never met the Lord Jesus could see the gospel right in front of their own eyes. Paul gave them a precious gift, a precious witness, because he responded to his own suffering with faith. Because he didn't give up. Because he got up again. Because he didn't let the darkness conquer him or the lies of the accuser prevail. Because he didn't ever stop believing that his God was good and was fighting for him. Or that the mission God had sent him on was right. The stoning may have broken every single bone in Paul's body, but it did not put a scratch in his faith. And friends, that's a huge challenge for us. I know it is for me. Because how often does our own suffering, even small suffering, and the own setbacks that we face in our lives damage our faith? How often does that happen? For me, it's all the time. Even after a small amount of suffering and a minor setback, days of faithlessness will likely follow. Days when I feel gloomy and depressed and reluctant to pray, and I start wondering if I made a wrong turn somewhere. But Paul says, no, you didn't. And I didn't. But instead, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul responded to persecution with faith. And third, Paul handed over leadership to others. And this third point will be very brief. But I want to notice that serving Jesus excellently includes raising up other leaders to do the work that you've been doing. So when Paul came home after his first missionary journey, he left behind churches. He left behind churches. Not isolated groups of converts, not mission compounds, staffed by foreigners and detached from their communities, but churches, self-sustaining, self-governing, and self-propagating Christian communities. And a major step in that work was his handing over leadership. So on the return journey through the cities, verse 23 says, they appointed elders for them in every church, and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas took three steps to establish their new churches. First, they instructed the people. They handed on the full deposit of faith. They taught them the foundation of what they needed to know, and they gave them access to the Old Testament scriptures. Second, 
They appointed local leaders, pastors who were already respected by their communities, indigenous leaders. They got the stamp of approval from Paul and Barnabas as people who really got it and would be able to teach others. And third, they committed the new churches to God. In other words, Paul and Barnabas got out of the way and they let the good shepherd take over with his own flock. They said to these new communities, you don't need us anymore because you have Jesus. And if we're gifted at some particular work, it's always going to be hard to hand it over to other people. So think about those cities. Who was the most qualified person to lead the church in Lystra? Paul and Barnabas. Who was the most qualified person to lead the church in Iconium? Paul and Barnabas. Who was the most qualified person to lead the church in any of the cities they were there? Paul and Barnabas, by a country mile. What are these two-week-old Christians going to do? But Paul and Barnabas are handed over by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And the most excellent workers are the ones who can hand their work on to a new generation of leaders. So overall, Paul and Barnabas were probably away on their first missionary journey for about two years. But they left behind lasting communities of faith in at least six important cities, churches that were self-governing and would grow and multiply and carry the gospel of Jesus onward to the towns and cities all around them. Paul and Barnabas had a highly multiplicative ministry. So I hope for all of us that we follow Jesus into the work that he has put each of us on earth to do. And he's remarkably good at casting. And whatever that looks like in our own lives, we learn from Paul that excellence in serving Jesus means refusing to take any glory for ourselves, responding to persecution and setbacks with faith, and handing over leadership to others. Amen.